Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're going to keep going with the uh, Romans message, uh, Romans series, and uh, today I'm going to tackle two chapters, Romans chapter 9 and chapter 11, and uh, the, the reason is not because we couldn't spend lots more time there, we could. Uh, Romans 9 and, and Romans 11, I really wrestled with that this past uh, week while well, even thinking about it the last couple of weeks. And there's so much stuff. We could spend uh, weeks and weeks and weeks in just Romans 9 and then another bunch of weeks and weeks and weeks in Romans 11. We really could. There's lots of amazing stuff. There's lots of deep stuff. Like really, there's lots of stuff to really ponder and chew on. But kind of my goal throughout this whole series has been, uh, I've, I've, I've made it my goal right from the beginning of doing Romans is I don't want to get, I don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. And I don't want to get so bogged down in, in passages of Romans that it, we make it seem more complicated than it is. So I, I've decided to tackle Romans 9 and 11 uh, together in one message because I want to make this something super uh, easy to remember, some really basic, the most important things. I want to make them super, super, super memorable and easy so that when you go home and now for all time when you're reading this stuff, you'll be able to read it and, uh, and, and remember what's going on and, and know what's going on. It's going to have a Drink water here so I don't have to carry this the entire time. Um, but in Romans 9 in particular, we're going to come to some passages here. Uh, some of the most vexing passages of Scripture. I just wanted to say the word vexing today. But uh, some of those vexing passages of Scripture in all of the Bible here in Romans 9. Uh, people, you know, Christians have debated this chapter in particular for centuries and no doubt many of you in your devotional reading, you've come across Romans 9 and you've been disturbed or bothered by some of the things in there. This is the passage where it talks about God hating Esau and loving Jacob. And there's a bunch of stuff in there. And, and, and a lot of people, they read this passage of Scripture and they're worried uh, that this passage of Scripture teaches that God chooses people at birth who are going to go to hell and he hates them. And he chooses other people at birth to go to heaven and he loves them. And so there's lots of stuff in here that can be disturbing. Um, and so I want to look at this, and we're going to just look at the context, because context really is everything. And so I'm just going to read verses 10 to 21, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into this. And uh, I hope that after this message, uh, you'll feel confident about reading Romans 9 and, and, and 11 for yourself, all right? So starting in verse 10, Paul says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So there's, a, there's one of those passages here in, in, in Romans 9 that people just, you read it in your devils and you're like, what do I do with this, right? And then he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump 
one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. And again, so here we find this whole thing about Esau and God choosing, and it, and it sure seems like God hates some people from birth and chooses them to be, you know, to be saved and others not. And then it almost seems like if you don't like it, you know, the next verse is the tone of the passage almost is Paul's like, and if you don't like it, you know, you just deal with it because God's God and he can do whatever he wants. That seems to be the tone of this passage. Um, but the thing you have to understand, as with, with anything, with any conversation you ever engage in or overhear or, uh, or, you know, or listen to or whatever, that context is absolutely everything, okay? Context is absolutely everything. So we're going to pray and we're going to look at the context here. Father, we thank you for these passages of Scripture. And uh, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who can illuminate for us truth. Help us to get the spirit of what Paul is trying to say here and help us to get the truth of what he's saying here. Make it simple for us today and memorable so that for the rest of our lives we can read these chapters here in Romans and enjoy them and learn from them and be drawn to you in them. In your name we pray, amen. Context, uh, context, context. If you don't know the context in which something is said, if you just put something by itself and look at it and try to understand it, it's impossible to know what it really means. And so I'm going to put up an example for you. For example, Let's imagine, okay, that you have started a new job and you've been there for a month and maybe you've been struggling, you've been, you've had a, you don't feel good about your performance yet, you're learning a lot of things. And, uh, and then one day you happen to overhear your boss uh, talking on his cell phone and you overhear him say this statement, we're going to get rid of him, things just haven't worked out. Now, um, if, you're a, if you're a woman and you're a she, then this sentence doesn't bother you at all, okay? But if you're a guy and you hear this sentence, we're going to get rid of them. Things just haven't worked out. Um, context is everything because this, this sentence by itself, this sentence can mean a thousand different things, really, depending on the context. You can't hear what's happening on the other side of the line. You don't know who the him is. You don't know what get rid of means. You don't know what they mean by just haven't worked out. But you can come to a lot of conclusions. And so if you just read this or if you just hear this sentence by itself, you might think to yourself, well, maybe I need to go look for a job at lunch because I'm just about to lose my job. But context is absolutely everything. Context changes what this sentence means depending on what the other person, what they're actually talking about, right? Because who knows, right? Maybe, maybe you don't know, maybe your boss is talking to his wife about a dog they just bought, right? And the dog's been peeing on the carpet or chewing on the shoes or whatever, and so they're going to get rid of him. Now, you don't even know what get rid of him means. Uh, if he's from Winnipeg, it probably means they're going to give him away to an animal shelter or something. If they're from somewhere, somewhere more out in the country, uh, and we won't mention names, uh, <laughs> places where people have guns, get rid of him might mean something totally different, right? Or uh, you don't know. Uh, it could mean, I mean, maybe this guy is talking to the, the person who, a buddy of his who runs the hockey pool. And he just made a trade, some blockbuster trade for a player he was hoping to get points from. This player hasn't been performing, so he wants to get rid of him off his team because things just haven't worked out. Maybe, again, context is everything. This sentence, that sentence could mean a thousand different things depending on the context. I mean, for all you know, your boss might be part of the secret Steinbach underground mafia or something. <laughs> He's got an associate that he needs to get rid of. You don't know, context is everything, okay? Context is absolutely everything, and it's the same here in Romans chapter 9. If we just take verses 10 through 21, we can make them say really whatever it is we want them to say. 
And if we just look at a verse where it says God hates Esau and he loves Jacob and he makes these choices, it can seem like, yes, it's true. It can really seem convincing that maybe God just chooses some people not to like at birth and other people to like, and he chooses this one to go to hell, and he chooses this one to go to heaven. It can seem that. But what we need to do is we need to hear the other side of the conversation, which is, what is the point that Paul is trying to make? If we don't know the rest of the conversation, if we don't know the argument Paul is making, if we don't know the point he's trying to make, then we're going to totally misunderstand these difficult verses about Esau and Jacob and all that. And so if we go back to the beginning of chapter 9, the beauty is that Paul is going to clearly, absolutely clearly tell us exactly what he's talking about. And when we fit these other troubling passages into his argument, Grade, uh, grade 9. Uh, grade 9 will never make sense to you, but uh, chapter 9 hopefully uh, will. Um, so if we go back to verse 1 here, let's see the context for these troubling passages. Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brother's my kinsmen according to the flesh, they are the Israelites. So the first thing you have to understand, okay? All of chapter 9, everything we're going to be talking about here in chapter 9, Paul is talking about the Jewish people. This is really, really important, okay? And he has a deep love for them, okay? He talks about it there. This is a parallel, by the way, to Exodus, I think it's 32 or 33. Moses said something uh, uh, very similar uh, about the people of Israel when God was angry at them and going to judge them, and he said, if you're not going to forgive them, God, then blot my name out of the book of life as well. This is a New Testament parallel. Moses, or Paul is like Moses here, and he says about his Jewish brothers and sisters, many of whom are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and are heading off to an eternity into hell, and he says, uh, if it would actually help, I would actually, he loves the Jewish people so much, uh, he's willing to have his own name blotted out of the book of life. Okay, now that's just a, and of course, God would never allow something like that. But that is a whole other level of love for his people, all right? But this whole chapter now is really important. This whole chapter is going to have to do with the Jewish people, all right? And so we keep reading. And to them, that's the Jewish people, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, okay? To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, so the ethnic Jewish race, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, if you have your Bibles here, or if you, you know, read your Bible on your phone, I know Vanessa told you to turn it off, but it's okay to have it on for reading the Bible. Um, but if you read your devos on the phone, or if you have your Bible here right now, I would underline that, that sentence there, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay? Really important sense, because this, this is now the whole argument. This is everything that Paul's going to talk about. If you don't pay attention to this sentence, everything else is out of context. Because every single thing that comes now from now to the end of chapter 9 is going to answer this question. Has God broken his promises? Has the word of God failed? Has God broken his promises to the Jewish people? Okay? And we see up there, underlined, the adoption of the covenants of promises. Paul sets it up this way. He says, um, God gave to my people, the ethnic Jewish race, my people, the Jews, he has given a number of promises and covenants. Okay? And now he's going to answer. But now the problem is, many of them are rejecting Christ. Many of them are not saved. Many of them are going on to an eternity in hell. And now, so Paul's going to answer this question. People are wondering, has God's promises to the Jews failed? That's everything in chapter 9 is about this. 
If you don't pay attention to verse 6, you will get absolutely 100% everything else. Well, maybe not 100%, but you will get it almost entirely wrong. Just like if you got the sentence I showed you before out of context, you would get it wrong. Now, first of all, we have to ask, what promises is Paul talking about? So, God made a number of promises to the Jews. I'm not going to look at every single one of them from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of promises to the Jewish people. But I'll just sum up five big ones that are made over and over and over again in the Old Testament. All right? And, uh, and so one promise that God made to the Jews is the promise of salvation and forgiveness of sins. So when God promised that there would be salvation and forgiveness of sins, he gave that promise to the Jewish people. I'm going to read you some passages, okay? Another promise is God gave the promise of the Holy Spirit that was also given to the Jewish people. The promise that God would one day set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and all the nations would flock to Israel. The promise that the land of Israel would always belong to the Jews. And the promise that all of Israel would be saved. And there's many, many passages. These are not obscure promises. These are major themes throughout the Old Testament. This is a, these are pillars of the Old Testament that you'll find in many places. Let me just read you a couple of passages. For example, out of the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So first of all, right there, you know, as believers now, as Christians now, we all know about the new covenant. That's the whole thing with Jesus. We get forgiveness of sins if we ask Jesus into our lives and we give our lives to him, right? The new covenant was not originally made with, with, with the whole world. It was originally a covenant with the Jewish people. I want you to notice that. Okay, he says there, I'm going to make a new covenant with you with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's very clear. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Again, notice this is not just with anybody who wants. Originally, this, this, this covenant was given to the Jewish people. And again, thankfully... We Gentiles now, when it comes to the new covenant and the promise of salvation, we have now been brought in to share in that promise, but originally it was given to the Jewish people, all right? Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So, and by the way, that's an incredible promise, which we're going to come back to in, uh, at the end of this message. But God actually made a promise here in Jeremiah that er I, there would come a point in time. There would come a point in time. Not every Jew in history, but there would come a point in time when every Jewish person alive, all of them, the least of the greatest, would all give their lives to him and be saved. Okay? Declares the Lord, for I will give their iniquity, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So that's one of the many promises that's in the Old Testament that is given to the Jewish people. There's other ones that have to do with the land of Israel. I'll just show you one of those, Genesis 17, verse 8. And uh, Moses writes, and God is saying to Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring, speaking to Abraham about Abraham's physical descendants. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this is, this is uh, uh, over 3,500 years ago. Well, Moses wrote this promise 3,500 years ago. Uh, Abraham goes back another few hundred years before that. This is about a 4,000-year promise. Notice that it says that he gave the land of Canaan to the, to the Jewish people as an everlasting possession. That means forever. 
And here we are, and the amazing thing to me is we, you go and look at a map today, you go look on the news, and 4,000 years later, the Jewish people are, are in the land of Israel. And that's, that's an amazing, that really is an astonishing thing. But God says to you and your descendants, I'm going uh, to give this piece of land. Now, okay, so just time out for just a second. So uh, when we come to Romans 9, I'm going to go to Romans 9 in just a second. When we come to Romans 9, Paul's going to start to answer the question now, did God's, these promises fail? Because... In, in, in the New Testament, obviously, lots of Jewish people, and even today, lots of Jewish people rejecting Jesus were not being saved. Many of them, just like a Gentile who rejects Jesus, they're going to go to hell. The Jewish people are asking, has God broken his promises to us? That's what Romans 9 is about. Before we go there, though, I just want to take a time out and I want to hit something else. Okay? And the thing I want to hit first is how a number of author, Christian authors and Christian teachers and churches, how they deal with this problem. How they deal with this problem that God made promises to Israel. He said, I'm give the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of, of the Holy Spirit. But then many Jews rejected it, so they were not saved. And so how many Christian uh, authors and teachers and writers today, how they answer this problem, did God break his promises to the Jews, is they say he didn't break his promise because the church has now replaced the Jews. That's how they answer it. So what's happened is God hasn't broken his promises to the ethnic Jewish race because the church is now the new Israel, is now the spiritual Israel, is the true Israel. And so now we have inherited all of these promises that God originally made to the Jewish people. And so they say that way God didn't break his promise. But I just want to stop right here and just say this. Um, The church, if the church has replaced Israel and the promises of God, then God has has indeed broken his promises to the Jewish people. Let's think about it this way. It doesn't matter how theological our language is. It doesn't matter how we dress it up in nice doctrine. Imagine it this way. I am married. My wife's name is Ladon. This year it'll be 15 years that we're married. And I love her. It's been an amazing 15 years, okay? So, uh, and on our wedding day, almost 15 years ago, I made a bunch of promises to her. I promised that I would be faithful to her and to her alone until death parts us. I promised to cherish her and love her and serve her and her only until death parts us. Now, can you imagine this? Of course, and I'm not even thinking about this. And I looked at her and told her that this morning when she was in the first service, just to make sure. But imagine now that I decide to run off with another woman. Okay, that'd be a terrible thing. But let's imagine I decide to run off with another woman. But I don't want anybody to think that I've broken my promises to Ladon. So what I do is I name this new woman Ladon. And I tell people, and people say, how can you do that? You're breaking your promises to Ladon. No, 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 I'm not breaking my promises to her. This is the new Ladon. This is spiritual Ladon. This is the true Ladon. Does that make me, it doesn't matter how I dress that up. Is there any way to dress that up that that's not me breaking a promise to Ladon? There isn't. Now you'll find people who will dress this up in all kinds of nifty language about the true Israel and the new Israel and da 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 And in the end, what it means is, and they're usually embarrassed to call it replacement theology, but it is replacement theology. But basically what it is is that God made promises to Israel and the church is the true Israel now. And that is absolutely not a way around this problem if the church has replaced. Now, does the church, as Gentile believers, have we now come in to share with some of the promises of the Jewish people? Yes. We have come in to share in the promises of salvation and the Holy Spirit and the new covenant. Those promises we've come in to share. But if we've replaced them in all the promises and those promises no longer apply to them as a people, then however you want to spin it, 
That is God breaking a promise to the Jewish people. And that's why I'm very passionate against that kind of theology because here's the thing. If God can break his promises to the Jewish people, we can have no confidence in the new covenant that God will keep his promises to us. Isn't that true? And I just 100% believe that God is an absolute promise keeper. So if he made promises to the Jewish people, those promises will always stand. So now we have to go back to Romans chapter 9, and I'll just throw up that one statement there. Some of you will only write things down if it's on the PowerPoint, but I just want that to be important there. The church has not replaced the Jewish people in the promise of God. We now share in some of the promises, and even at that, it's not all of them. We don't share in the promise of the land of Israel. The church does not inherit the land of Israel. The Jewish people will always be there, but when it comes to salvation and the Holy Spirit, we now share in it, but the church has not replaced the Jewish people. But of course, this now brings us to Romans chapter 9. And, and the, the problem that happened was the Jews took all these promises, and there's so many of them in the Old Testament, and they took them, and basically, but they misunderstood them, and they didn't read them carefully. They weren't, they weren't careful in the reading of it, and they basically took all the promises from Scripture, and they said, uh, basically what these promises mean is that we are saved automatically just by being Jewish. If I'm a Jew, and as, as long as I keep the law, as long as I'm circumcised, if I'm a man, and I, and I keep the Sabbath, if I do those things, if I'm descended from Abraham, I'm automatically saved. Because that's what the promises say, that God gave these promises to the Jews, therefore all of us Jews are automatically saved. Now, of course, Paul comes along, and he's preaching a gospel that says, you're only saved by faith. And if you don't have faith, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, both Jews and Gentiles who don't have faith in Jesus will go to hell. And so the Jews look at Paul and they say, the gospel you're preaching is a gospel that God is breaking his promises to the Jewish people. Now in Romans 9, Paul is going to defend himself and he's going to say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. His whole point in Romans 9 is this. I'm going to put them up there again just so you can see them. If you write this down, this is, once you get this, Romans 9 makes sense. Okay, all of Romans 9 will make sense once you understand. It's a troublesome passage, but once you know what Paul's trying to do, it all makes sense. And he's got two points. Number one, God has not broken his promises to the Jews. God's not a promise breaker. Okay? Number two, but then you say, well, how can he not be a promise breaker if you're saying that many Jews, that any Jew who doesn't put their faith in Jesus is going to go to hell just like a Gentile? And Paul says, here's the thing. You never actually read your scriptures carefully those promises were never meant to be an automatic guarantee of salvation. You always needed faith. All along, you needed faith. So yes, God gave the promise of salvation to the Jewish people as a nation. But within that, any individual Jewish person who wants to be saved must put their faith in God, must put their faith in Jesus. And now what Paul's going to do in Romans 9 is he's going to quote, he quotes like half a dozen different scriptures and uses Old Testament examples like Esau and Jacob. And what he's going to do is he's going to prove to them from their own scriptures. He's going to say, look at your own scriptures. From the very beginning, being Jewish was never an automatic guarantee of salvation. You always needed faith. God gave you the promises as a nation, but as individual Jews, you can only receive them by faith. That's what he's going to prove in Romans 9. Once you realize that, all of his arguments make sense. And so we're going to start at the end of Romans 9 and work our way uh, back to the front, to the Esau and Jacob part, okay? So if we start in verse 30, let's see Paul making this argument. What shall we say then? This is his conclusion to the chapter. 
What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were, as if it were based on works. Paul says, you guys missed the point not you guys, but he, I mean, they're his own race as well. But you Jews who haven't accepted the gospel, you don't, what you don't realize is all along your Old Testament, all those laws, the Ten Commandments, they were never meant to save you by works. They were always meant to point you to faith in God and to believe in him. See, a lot of us, even as Christians today, have a totally wrong, we have a total misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Many Christians today, if you ask them what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they'll tell you, in the Old Testament, you were supposed to be saved by works. In the New Testament, you're supposed to be saved by grace. Absolutely, 100% false. God never intended for people to ever be saved by works. That's impossible. That's why Hebrews 11, when it talks about the saints of the Old Testament, it talks about Abraham, it talks about Moses, it talks about all the greats in the Old Testament, and Jacob and Isaac. And it says in Hebrews 11, what does it say over and over again? Does it say those Old Testament saints were saved by works? No, it says over and over again, they were saved by faith. And Paul's point is, the Old Testament law was always meant to be pursued by faith. Which is why he said, you guys think God's breaking his promise to you. He isn't. The promise was always built on faith. Any Jewish person who dies without putting their faith in Jesus dies apart from God and goes to an eternity away from God, just like a Gentile. And Paul's point is, now he's going to quote Old Testament scripture to prove it to them. He's going to say to them, basically what he's saying is, if you would have read more carefully, you would have seen this there all along. God's not breaking his promise. He always said that's how it was going to be. And now he's going to quote Isaiah 28, 16. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Isaiah 28, 16, I behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him. See, doesn't that sound like a New Testament phrase? You've got to believe in him? That's, an, that's actually in the Old Testament. Paul says right from the beginning, the promise was always for those Jews who would believe in the one whom God would send. It was never automatic just for being Jewish. The promises were given to you to receive, but you had to receive them by faith. So important. If we back up a few more verses, Paul's going to say it in a slightly different way because, again, these Jews assumed that just being a descendant of Abraham automatically saved them. Paul's going to take them to the Old Testament. He's going to say, the old, your own Old Testament tells you, your own scriptures, your Hebrew scriptures tell you that many Jews would not be saved. We find this in, in verses 27 through 29, and Paul's going to quote Isaiah again. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So Paul's saying, look, the, your Hebrew scriptures say it right here. Not every Jew is going to be saved. God gave a promise to the nation, but he said right from the very beginning that many within that nation would not receive it by faith. Only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, he's going to quote Isaiah again. This is Isaiah 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay? So now some of you are going, wait, 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 wait. So now you've quoted us these two sets of passages. One set of passages says that all of Israel is going to be saved. And another set of passages says many Israelites will not be saved. Only a small number will be saved. How do those two things go together and not be a contradiction, okay? We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes at the end of this message, but I'll just tell you this. The promise that all Israel will be saved is a promise for the future, something that's going to happen in the future when all the Jews who are alive will give their lives to Christ and be saved. In the meantime, many Jews are going to die without knowing Jesus, and they will die and not be saved. 
Okay? But, the, but, in, but in Paul's day, those Jewish people had taken those promises to mean we're all saved automatically. And Paul's saying, no, no, many of you will not be saved. So important, okay? Well, anyway, now we come to these troublesome passages about Jacob and Esau. And now when you understand the argument that Paul is making, this Jacob and Esau argument makes a whole lot more sense. Because what Paul is doing here is, again, these Jewish people think, if I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm automatically going to heaven. And Paul's, and I'm automatically a, a, a son of the promise. I'm all automatically inherit the promises of salvation. What Paul's going to do now is he's going to say, you think being a descendant of Abraham automatically saves you? And he's going to show them descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament that were not, that, that did not inherit the promise. Okay? So here, let's uh, pick this up here. If I can find where I am. Here I am, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham just because they're his offspring. So his point here is not everybody automatically gets the promises just because they come from Abraham. Now he's going to make his next point. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, let's just pause for a second. Because some of you, when you read your Bible, you read a passage like this and you're going, what in the world? How does this apply to me? Isn't that true? Some of you do that. And, and, and we see, because we, here we are in 2016, and we live in this world of like, it just me, 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 me. So I live in this world of like, you know, trite little Christian sayings and slogans, and I want to have a little 30-second devotional that immediately speaks to me in my life. Not that there's anything wrong with 30-second devotionals, but they're just not enough in and of themselves. But I just want to have a 30-second devotional that just applies directly to my life exactly right now of something that's going on in my life in 2016. And then we open up our Bibles and we find out that we're reading a book that is thousands of years old. And the storyline of this book does not revolve around us and our little 2016 modern lives. And so we think, give me something that, give me something for my life right now. And what we don't realize is, this is actually what we need, is to be immersed in a story of God that is ancient, in a God that is sovereign. And when we get our lives right with him and we bring ourselves into alignment with him, many of those other little things, it's not bad to get help for those little things, but many of those things will only fall into alignment when you come into submission to this almighty God, this ancient God and this storyline that's been going on for thousands of years. But anyway, coming back to Romans 9, so we read, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What is he talking about and why? Well, again, the point he's making is that not every person who's descended from Abraham is automatically a son of the promise. You say, well, what does that have to do with through Isaac shall your offspring be named? Well, remember, how many sons did Abraham have? The famous ones. Actually, he had some more later on. But the famous ones, he had how many? Two. Isaac and Ishmael. Okay? So right now, Paul is making, he's bringing a point home. He's saying, you guys say that you're automatically receiving the promise of salvation because you're a descendant of Abraham. But you all agree Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham and you all agree he didn't receive the promises. And the Jews are going, oh, that's right. Maybe it isn't automatic, right? Maybe it's not automatic. See what Paul says next, verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, right? So that's the point he's making. You're not just saved because of ethnicity. Okay, now of course, any good Jew living in this time would have gone, okay, 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 okay. That's true. You have a good point there with Ishmael. But 
Ishmael was a son of Hagar, the servant girl. That was an adulterous affair. It should never have happened. That's why Ishmael is not counted in the promise. Any of the, the, the descendants through Sarah, those ones would be, those ones would receive the promise. Okay, so now that explains the next few verses because now this is why Paul's going to use Jacob and Esau. He's going to say, okay, I'll make this point even better. It's not just Ishmael, it's even in Isaac's line. Not everybody who comes from Isaac even receives the promises. And so this is what he says next. Verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order... In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. So here's Paul making the exact same point again. He's saying, okay, you don't want to count Ishmael? Let's go through Isaac. Even at, through Isaac, Esau was born at the same time as Jacob. He's just as related to Abraham as Jacob is. He's just as related through Sarah. And even there, Esau didn't get the promises uh, Jacob did, okay? Really, really important. Okay, now, I want to just stop here for just a moment. So again, Paul's big argument is being a descendant of Abraham doesn't automatically save you. Look at all these descendants of Abraham who weren't automatically saved. But now let's just talk. I'm just going to time out for a second. We'll come back to that. Let's talk about this language, Esau hated Jacob I loved. Again, we are not reading a, we're not reading a Facebook page here in Romans. We're reading a, a document that's a couple thousand years old. And Paul is quoting something from Malachi, which is even a few hundred years older than that. And uh, when Malachi and Paul are quoting here, when they say, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate it, they're not talking about you went on Facebook and said, I hate so-and-so. And hopefully none of you has ever done that. Or I hate a certain sports team, or I hate a certain kind of food. When we use the word hate, it's always in that temperamental, a feeling of hate, Okay. When God says it here, this is not to do with a temperamental feeling that God woke up on the wrong side of bed and he just said, you know what, one of you guys I'm going to hate. Esau, I'm going to hate you because you've got red hair covering your whole body and that's weird. <laughs> okay, first of all, God made Esau. He decided he would be covered in red fur. He doesn't hate that, okay? He knit them both together in their mother's womb. This has nothing to do with temperament, feelings of hate. What this, in fact, I'm going to prove it to you. Just as last week in my devos, I actually came across a passage about Esau and Deuteronomy 2, which I'll get to in just a moment. But let me just go to Genesis 25. This is not a feeling of hate. Okay? This has to do with God's right to choose where the promises will flow through. Okay? But Genesis 25, verse 23, says this, And the Lord said to her, that's Rebecca, Notice that God blessed both Esau and Jacob, not just one. Two nations are in your womb. Not just Jacob is going to become a nation. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 2, which I came across in my devotions. Totally, you know, coincidental. It wasn't planned or part of what I was doing message prep. But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 2, a few hundred years later, after Jacob and, and uh, Esau are, off the, are out of the picture, the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, uh, are led by Moses out of, the land of, out of the land of Egypt, and they're heading now to the promised land. And on their way to the promised land, they come to the land uh, of Edom, which is Esau's descendants. And I want you to notice what God talks, how God talks about the descendants of Esau. This is amazing. Then the Lord said to me, that's Moses, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers. So first of all, notice this, not your enemies, your brothers. He calls the descendants of Esau brothers. The people of Esau who lived in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not, notice this, God says he's giving the Israelites very strict instructions. Do not 
contend with them. Don't fight with them, for I will not give you any of their land, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, not even the tiniest piece, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money, so you're going to buy whatever you need that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. God did not hate Esau or his descendants. Okay? In fact, for all we know, uh, you know, Esau, for all we know, because we think, here's the thing, God hating, the, the Esau and, and Jacob thing is not about God choosing people to go to heaven or hell. It's about him choosing which line of descendants are the promises going to flow through. Where's the Messiah going to come from? Who's going to get the land of Israel? All that sort of stuff. Essentially, when God chose Jacob over Esau for that, Esau became a, essentially a Gentile, just like the rest of us, which means he could be saved by faith just like the rest of us or Abraham or any of the rest. For all we know, Esau will be in heaven someday. I mean, we see him later in life. What happens when him and Jacob meet later in life? You can read it uh, this week. Esau embraces Jacob. He forgives Jacob. Jacob was, did horrible things to Esau. And Esau forgives him, offers to protect him and go with him. Uh, for all we know, we don't know. Okay? So this is not about heaven and hell. This is, this, Paul, this is all part of Paul's argument that you're not saved automatically by being a descendant of Abraham. Because look, Esau did not receive the promises automatically by being a descendant of Abraham. Also, with this Esau argument, Paul's setting up one more sub-point. And I'm going to put the sub-point up there uh, right away. If you can just put that up, that'd be great. So here's what we got so far. The whole point of Romans 9 is God has not broken his promises to Jews, and being Jewish was never meant to be an automatic guarantee of salvation. And now with this Esau argument, Paul's going to bring up a sub-point for number two, which is that God is allowed to bring in Gentiles to share in these promises. He has a right to choose. He has a right to do that. God has a right because the Jewish people would have said, no, no, you've got to be a Jew to, to receive these promises. And Paul's going to make the argument, actually, God has a right to bring in Gentiles to share in the promises of salvation. And that's why just a few verses after the Esau verse, we read this, verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God has a right to even bring Gentiles in these promises. And now he's going to quote Old Testament scripture to prove it. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, Gentiles, I will call my people. And her, her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And then he quotes Hosea 1.10. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, Gentiles again, there they will be called sons of the living God. Okay? So here's the, here's the recap of Romans chapter 9. This is all what Romans 9 is about. Paul is not talking here about how do individual people get saved. He's not saying God chooses some people to be saved and some people not. He's already talked about how you get saved in Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, and, and 6. And he's going to talk about it again in chapter 10, just to emphasize. And the way you're saved is by faith. Whether you're a Jewish person or whether you're a Gentile, we are all saved the same way by putting our faith in Christ. That's the only way to be saved. Okay? So here in Romans 9, he's not talking about how an individual person gets saved. He's talking to the Jews about this thing here. God has not broken his promises to the Jewish people. Being Jewish was never meant to be an automatic guarantee of salvation. God has the right to bring the Gentiles in to share in some of those promises to the Jews, the promises of salvation in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, if all we had was chapter 9, we might be forgiven 
for wondering if God was done with the Jewish people, right? We might be forgiven for wondering, okay, well, maybe there's, maybe there's no difference between the Jewish nation and other nations. Maybe since Jesus died on the cross, maybe the Jewish nation is just like any other nation. They're like the Mexicans and the Italians and the Canadians and, and, and the Polish and, and everybody else. It's just another nation in the whole grand scheme of things. If all we had was Romans 9, we might be forgiven for coming to that conclusion. But we don't just have Romans 9. We also have Romans 11. And in Romans 11, Paul's going to hit the other side of this, which is that yes, many individual Jews have rejected Christ and as a result, they'll spend eternity away from God just like Gentiles who reject him. But Paul's now going to make the point. So on an individual level, you have to receive him by faith, whether Jew or Gentile. But on a national level, there is still a very unique and special calling on the Jewish nation that is different than any other nation. And so we read in Romans 11 verse 1, Paul starts it off saying this, I ask then, has God rejected his people, the Jews? By no means, okay? And so the promises of God still hold. Look at this, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God says that the land of Israel would always belong to the Jewish people, it will always belong to them. Okay, when he said, you know, and these different promises that, that there's going to come a day when God's going to have his kingdom in Jerusalem and all the nations will flock there. That's, a, that's an irrevocable promise. It will happen, Okay. So now we come to this promise. Well, what about this promise that all the Jews will be saved, right? We, we read that in Jeremiah, and it's other places in the Old Testament as well. The Jewish people took that to mean that all Jews throughout all history would automatically be saved. And Paul says, no, no, no. There will be many Jews throughout history who don't receive Jesus, and they'll die, and they'll go to hell, just like Gentiles who don't receive Jesus. And what Paul's going to say is, but there is coming a time at the end when there's going to come a time at the end, right before Jesus returns, when every Jewish person on earth will receive Christ into their hearts. And at that time, the whole nation will be saved. And we read that here in verses 25 through 27. Paul says this, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It's a future promise. It's a future promise. There's coming a day when all Israel will be saved. There's coming a day when all the Jews who are on earth at that time will give their lives to Christ from the least to the greatest. As it is written, and now he's going to quote a different passage, Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, this is a very unique promise, and it only applies to the Jewish people. There, there will never be a day in the future when every single Canadian will give their lives to Christ. Now, we're going to pray, and we're going to work for the harvest, and we want many Canadians to come to Christ. But there will never be a day when every Canadian, from least to the greatest, gives their life to Jesus Christ. There'll never be a day in the future, or at any point in history, when every single Mexican, or every single Italian, or every single Russian will give their lives to Christ. We're praying and working for the, for the uh, Great Commission and the Great Harvest. We want to see many saved, but there will never be a day when, a, when an entire nation gives their life to Jesus, but it will happen with the Jewish nation. And there is a day coming when every single Jewish person who's on the earth just before Jesus returns, when they will all, and they won't be saved just because they're Jewish, but every Jew who's alive will give their life to Christ and be saved by putting their faith in him. God is absolutely committed to this. He has promised it over and over again in his word in the Old Testament, and Paul affirms it here in Romans 11. And do you think it's any accident? Do you think it's any accident that after 1,800 years of being dispersed around the world, 68 years ago, they came back into the land of Israel? Do you think it's any accident that this tiny little nation with just a few million people dominates the headlines of our news? It's always in the news. 
How many countries never make it into the news? Much bigger countries. Israel's always in the news. It's always discussed at the United Nations. Do you think any of this is any accident? We are, un- we are witnessing the unfolding of a much bigger storyline, an ancient storyline that goes back 4,000 years to Abraham, that God has been sovereignly ordaining events, and he is even right now working out events. We're watching them unfold before our eyes, where he is going to corner the people of Israel, where he's going to get them into a place where they finally realize that their only hope is him, and they're all going to give their life to him from the least to the greatest, and the entire nation will be saved. And the amazing thing about that day is in that day when the Jewish people call out to him for help, Jesus won't wait a day, he won't wait a week, he won't wait a month. In the day that the Jewish people call out to him and receive him as a nation, en masse, the entire nation, as when they receive him by faith, in that day he will come back and he will rescue them from their oppressors and all who hate them. That, my friends, is one of the biggest storylines of the Old Testament. If, if anything is predicted in the Old Testament, it is that, that a day is coming when the Lord will come down, when the Jewish people will give their lives to him and he will come down and he will fight for them and he will save them. This is a love story that's been playing out for 4,000 years. And it's also why we Gentile believers need to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people because this ties in with, with, with us being blessed too. And we see this in verse 11 of chapter 11. Paul says this, So I ask, Did they, the Jewish people, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Uh, Here's what Paul's saying. Uh, Because the question could come up, okay, God made this, this, this promise to save all of Israel, but why is he waiting so long? Why does it have to take so many thousands of years? And Paul is, I mean, he's, in Romans 9 and 11, this guy, he's dealing with huge questions of God's sovereignty and how people come to him and how he works on, on a national level, bringing human history to its culmination. And Paul says here, the explanation is this, why God hasn't done this earlier and why it's taken him so long to get them to a place where they're going to finally want, receive him as their Messiah is because he wanted to give us Gentiles more time for more of us to come in. And if you think about it, he says, there had to be a partial hardening. There had to be a partial hardening on, on Israel. There's always been Jews who have given their life to Christ, but never the whole nation. As a whole, the nation has rejected him. But it had to happen in order for us Gentiles to be saved, that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, ultimately, this is Paul's argument. If you read the book of Acts, what you'll see is that it was the Jewish people who rejecting the gospel that forced the apostles, Paul and the disciples, to go out into all the world and spread the gospel to us Gentiles. So in a sense, God, in a sense, God is blessing us through the Jewish rejection of the gospel. Now here's what Paul says next. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, I mean if them rejecting the gospel, here's the thing, Paul, you know what God said to Abraham in Genesis? He said, I'm going to bless all the nations through your descendants. I'm going to bless all the nations through your descendants. Now, the biggest part of that promise is Jesus came through Abraham's descent. But there's another sense in which that promise is true. God said, I'm going to bless the the nations through your, your descendants. And God said, I'm going to bless them whether your descendants do good or whether your descendants do bad. So when the Israelites, when the Jewish people rejected Jesus, God said, I'll bless all the nations by using that rejection to spread the gospel. That's Paul's, that's Paul's argument here. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, but now Paul's going to make the next part of the argument, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Here's Paul's argument here. If God could bless us Gentiles through the Jewish people sinning and rejecting Jesus, how much more will he bless us when they accept Jesus? 
if God can bless us Gentiles through the sins of the Jewish people, how much more will he bless us through the faith of the Jewish people? And so that brings us to verse 13, or verse 15, sorry, I'm going to skip over 13 there. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Here's what Paul's saying. What if, if, if the Jewish rejection of the gospel meant that the whole world got to have the gospel, then what will the Jewish acceptance of the gospel mean but the resurrection? In other words, in the day, in the day that the Jewish people all give their lives to Christ, in that very day, Jesus will come back and we will all get our resurrected bodies. Now, I don't know about you, but that is motivation for us to pray for the nation of Israel. That is motivation for us to pray for the nation of Israel. We need to stand in awe. There's, I think there's two things we take from this message. Number one, we stand in awe of the God who is a promise keeper. He will never break a promise. He won't break any of his promises to the Jewish people. He won't break any of his promises to us. And then secondly, there needs to be something in us. We need to, there needs to be a space in our lives for us not to be so focused just on our little itty-bitty lives there needs to be space in our lives to look to step back and look at the grand story of what's happening in here and what's happening in history and to realize that we're a part of something much bigger than just the day-to-day anxieties and stresses of our lives. And if we will ever begin as a church and as, as, as Christians to begin to pray for the Jewish people, when I pray for them, I pray for them to know that Jesus is their Messiah because in that way we can speed up Jesus' return because in the day that they recognize him as his Messiah, all of those who are alive will be saved and we will be saved. We will be resurrected. Let's pray, and then we'll finish by worshiping the Lord with one more song. Lord Jesus, I lift up the Jewish people to you here today. So often, Father, we get caught up in our own, in just the the little details of our lives, and that's not bad. Our lives matter to you as well, but there's also a bigger story, and, and Romans 9 and 11 is about this bigger story. There's a bigger thing happening, and you've been pursuing a people. You've been pursuing the the Jewish people for 4,000 years. And Lord, it's in our best interests to pray for them, to pray for peace in Jerusalem, and also to pray for the scales to fall from their eyes and for them to recognize you, Jesus, as their Messiah. We look forward to that day. We pray for all the, the churches, the Messianic Jewish churches in the land of Israel today. Pray that you would put your Holy Spirit on them powerfully, that many Jewish people would get saved increasingly year by year. And Father, again, that you would... Just complete the great commission in the land of Israel, even as we ask this. And Father, also give us here a sense of awe at your sovereignty, at the plan you've been unfolding all these years, all these thousands of years, that you are our promise keeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.